So my name's Clayton Walker. I'm the pastor here at, at Raider Church. And um, uh, just a show of hands real quick. How many of you have a name that has like a, a special meaning, like your parents named you uh, your, your name because it, there was a special meaning or, 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 or spiritual meaning or something like that in the, just the etymology of your name. Anybody got a name like that? Okay, so some of you do. Um, the rest of you are like me in that your name is just a random name. Like my, my parents gave me the name Clayton as they were traveling and they saw Clayton, New Mexico on the map and they thought, that sounds like a good name. We'll go, we'll go, with, we'll go with Clayton. So I'm named after a, a city in New Mexico. It's not even Texas, okay? I'm named after a city in New Mexico. I don't, I don't know. So, so some of you, you, you have a name. Your parents gave it to you for a spiritual reason or because of the etymology of the name. It, it, it meant something special to them. And so they named you that name. Others of us are like me or, you know, like my daughter Nixon. We just like the name. Uh, my in-laws and my parents are like, did you name her after the president? And we're like, oh yeah, we didn't really think about that. We didn't grow up during that time. So, so no, it's, it's not after the, the president. We just, we just like the name. However, my boys, um, we both named uh, because of spiritual reasons. Levi, uh, we, we got from the Bible. The Levi was the, the tribe of priests. Uh, Matthew, the disciple, was also known as, as Levi. And then Coben's middle name is Jude, or it comes from Judah, which meant to uh, the praise of God. And, and so it was known as a, a name that meant to, to worship God. They were worshipers, the, the, the tribe of Judah. And so that had a spiritual meaning. But Nixon just got the, the name of a president that um, you know, resigned or, or was in peace or something like that. So, so there wasn't a whole lot special there. Okay. So, so, but depending upon how well you know me, uh, depends on maybe the, the names that you might call me. Okay. Some of you have nicknames. Okay. I, I have some of those too. Like my mom or my best friends will call me Clay. In fact, you, you may have heard Brandon or Mark. Sometimes they'll refer to me as, as Clay. Okay, only my really close friends uh, will call me that. Or, or my mom will refer to me as Clay. I don't like it, um, but, but they, they call me that anyways. Okay, my brothers will call me C. Murda or C.W. or uh, C. Walk. Or they even call, we call each other because of our equal and, and mutual admiration for the show Arrested Development, uh, we call each other hermano all the time when we see each other. So, so if you've seen that, you know what I'm talking about. If not, well, it's not a series to go watch. Never mind. So, 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 um, but we call each other hermano. Okay. Now my kids call me dad. People from uh, the churches that I've pastored sometimes will call me pastor. My wife calls me Captain America. And in case you're like, bro, you're lying. She didn't really call. That's my name in her phone. Okay. That's my name. That's her, her, her name for me in her phone is Captain America. And I, I think it fits. Like, I think, I, I mean, I, I think it makes total sense that, that, that I'm her Captain America. And, and so, so depending upon how you know me, uh, depends on maybe the, the name that you might use. If you know uh, different parts of those names, or if you know the different names or the ways, the different ways that, that people refer to me as, it kind of gives you insight into who I am. It allows you to get to know me a little bit better. Like now that you know my wife calls me Captain America, don't you just feel like you know me like so much better? Like I just, I just make so much more sense to you now, now that you know that's what she calls me. And, and so when you get to know someone's name or 
their nicknames or the ways that, that someone might refer to someone. You get to know them. You get to know the person. You get to know what they're like. And the same thing is true with the names of God in the Bible. There are many different names of God in the Bible. And so in this series, we're going to look at some of those names. And it's probably a series we'll come back to in later years. We're going to look at some of those names of God. And then like, what do, what do those names teach us? What do they tell us about God? Because we want to get to know God. We want to get to know his character and his nature. Because here's the problem. If we don't, here's the problem. Like if we don't know the God of the Bible, as he's revealed himself in the scripture, we begin to form our own God that's made in our image. And the problem with that is the Bible teaches there's only one God. There's one God, it's the God of the Bible, and he's revealed himself. He's allowed us in many different ways to get to know him and what he's like, not all, everything about him. We can never know all there is to know about God because he is the creator, we are the created, and so we could never know everything there is to know about God, but there's a lot that God has disclosed about himself, has revealed about himself, and so we can get to know who God is. And one of the ways we can do that is by looking at the names of God in the Bible. And so the first name that we're going to look at tonight is this. It's Elohim. Elohim is how you say that. This name of God is referred to uh, hundreds, if not like over a thousand times in the Old Testament alone. And so we're going to look at this name and break it down and, and some of what it means and what it teaches us about God. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter one. Um, if you don't have a Bible, and even if you do, um, I would suggest going to RaiderChurch.com, select message notes. You can follow along with us because we're going to jump around to a few places and uh, we're going to talk about a lot tonight as we get to know God, his character and his nature. And man, it's my prayer, like I said a second ago, that as we learn more about God, as we get to know him, him, as we get to know God, will fall in love with who he is. And I believe that'll happen for a lot of us through this series. The Greek word for name means to know. And so as we look at these names of God, we're going to get to know God. And when you get to know God, it changes your life. So let's go. Elohim, the first place we see this is in Genesis chapter one, verse one. And it says this, in the beginning, God, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. So in this verse, we learn two things about God. The first thing that we learn about God is that Elohim refers to his pre-existence, that God existed before the earth and time and space as we know it began. In the beginning, God. God was already there in the beginning of everything that we know about all that we see. And so we learn about God. The Bible teaches us about God, that he was pre-existing the, the heavens and the earth. And because he was already there when the heavens and the earth began, in the beginning, God existed. He pre-existed time and space as we know it. And so the Bible will say to you, God, a thousand years are like a day. A thousand years to you, God, are but moments, are but the snap of a finger. A day to you is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like 
a day because God exists outside of time and space. He created time and space as we know. So he's pre-existent. And this is important because how many times have you heard when, it, when, when people refer to the evil in this world, which we talked about in the series we were just in, the evil that takes place in the world or, what, or how could God let this happen? Or why does God continue to let evil exist? He doesn't punish evil. He doesn't come and, and, and condemn and, to, and, and judge evil. And God says, you may not think that's the case because you're looking at everything in your time and in your space, but I exist outside of time and space and I have done something. I have done something. The world and everything in it, you, the world, everything is cursed because of sin. And God says, I have done something about it. I've sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay the fine for your sin so that the curse of sin, death, would be taken off of you. And in the end, in the end as you know it, God says, my son will return and he will restore everything. And it says in Revelation 22 about this new city, the new heavens and the new earth, that God says, I will make everything new and the evil will be punished. Satan will be put into a prison for a thousand years. And then at the end of that thousand years, Satan and all those who have gone to war against God in the end will be in hell forever. And so we look at God oftentimes and say, why haven't you done this? Why don't you do this? And God says, listen, I, I have. Before the foundation of the earth, before the world ever started as you know it, my plan was to redeem you, my people, and all of creation through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so God says, I, I have. I have done something. The curse has been paid for. It's been lifted off of you. And I am redeeming all things. To you, it hasn't happened yet. But for me, for God, from his perspective, he says, I, I have done something. I have acted. I have rescued you. But I exist outside of time and space. It's also why, like in Hebrews, it says that Jesus died once and for all time. Or, or in Romans chapter 3, where it says that, that God, through Christ, was punishing the sin of those who had faith in times of old or in the old covenant. That those like Abraham or Moses or, or, or David, as they placed their faith in God, Jesus' sacrifice for sin counted for them too and was the punishment for their sin as well as ours. So when Christ died on the cross, it says that he was punished and, and he was killed. He was murdered on that cross. He was beaten for us once and for all time. Not only for your sin, past, present, and future, but for those people of faith, past, present, and future. Because God exists outside of our time and space. And he acts in time and space as we know it. But he exists outside of time and space. So, so here we learn that God is pre-existent. The second thing we learn in this verse is that God, uh, Elohim refers to God's power to create. His power to create. As you continue to read in Genesis chapter one, God speaks and he speaks everything out of nothing. There was nothing. The Bible says it was empty. The, the, there was nothing. And God speaks and he speaks everything all of creation, the heavens and the earth, he speaks it by the power of his word into existence. 
There was nothing and he spoke and then there was everything. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter one, as you continue to read that the world, the earth, it was formless and empty. And so God fills the emptiness with the power of his word. God can fill the empty spaces with the power of his word. It was dark and God brought light. And it says that God literally hung our sun in space and the stars of the sky. He put them there and he calls them each by name. God spoke into the darkness and created light. The world was formless, it says in Genesis 1. It was empty and God brought order and design with the power of his word. He brought order and design to that which was formless. There was no life and, and God spoke and with the power of his word, Elohim, God spoke and brought life where there was no life. And so there was vegetation at the power of his word. There were animals on the dry land at the power of his word. There were fish in the seas and the ocean at the power of his word. There was no man or woman, but God formed man and woman and he breathed into them the breath of life. There was no life, but God through forming man and woman and breathing into them, he brought life into existence where there was no life. Our God, Elohim, has the power to create everything out of nothing, to create something out of nothing. And he looked at all of it. He looked at all of creation. He looked at man and woman. And the Bible says in Genesis chapter one, he looked at everything he had done and he said, it is good. It is good. And you know, we believe that not only the Bible says this, but that also science and philosophy point to a creator, God. There's something called the teleological argument, the scientific argument that says that you can look and see order and design in our universe and in our world and in man and, and, and woman, we can look and we can see order and design. And so we know that there must be an orderer or a designer in the same way we look at this building and say, there must have been an architect. There must have been a builder. The teleological argument says we look and we see order and design and beauty and art. And we look and we say, we know inherently, we know in ourselves, there must have been an architect. There must have been a design. There must have been a builder who put this together. You come into a room like this and you see all these rows with chairs. You see order and design. And we know someone must have put these chairs into these rows and into this order because we see order. We know there's an orderer. When we see design, we know there's a designer. We would never say a building like this or even something as simple as the chairs in these rows happened by chance. We would say that's impossible. We look at it and inherently we know someone did that. There was an intelligence that put that order and design together. We look at art, things of beauty. We look at the sunsets in West Texas and we look at that and they say, there must be an artist. I look at my wife and I'm like, whoa, oh yeah, that's beautiful. That's some art right there. There must be an artist. Guys, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? <laughs> There's an argument called the moral argument. It's a philosophical argument that says, 
because we have a sense of morality inside of us, because we have a sense of justice, of right and wrong, no matter where you go on the face of the planet, even to the most remote tribe that's never heard of the 10 commandments or, or our law or the constitution or the bill of rights or anything like that. You go to the most remote tribe on the face of the planet and it's almost always wrong to murder, steal and to rape. Where do they get that? Where do they get that sense of morality, that sense of justice, that when someone does something wrong, they should be punished? Where does that come from? The moral argument states that we have a sense of right and wrong and justice because God put it there. That would be the only explanation that something that was of even higher morality and someone who had an even higher degree of, of justice would be able to give us that sense of morality, that sense of justice, which leads us to the philosophical argument or the scientific argument and philosophical of uh, the cause called the cosmological argument or the causal argument that says that every effect has a cause. And when you continue to go back further and further, one of the things we now know and we, we learn is that there must have been a first cause, an uncaused cause that brought everything into existence because the law of cause and effect, the cosmological argument says that every cause is greater than its effect. And so when we look at the order and design, or we look at our sense of morality or our desire to, to love and to relate and to connect and to communicate, when we look at all those things, our consciousness, our sense of justice, we must know that wherever we came from has an even higher degree, the cause that affected us and all of creation, all of the universe has to have an even higher degree of morality, of justice, of love, of desire and ability to communicate, of consciousness. Whatever we came from has an even higher degree because the cause is always greater than the effect. And so we look at us and we say there's order and design and beauty. So we must have come from somewhere or someone that is, has an even higher degree of order, design, and beauty. And this is important because it affects the way that we see God and it affects our response to God. So what do we, what do, we do with this? What does this mean for us? Well, it, it means this, that we need to believe. We need to believe, we need to trust God. We need to trust the God who can speak things into existence. The God who can create something, everything out of nothing. We need to believe in the God who can fill the emptiness. Our response should be to believe in the God who can bring order to chaos. Our response is to believe in this God. But there's so much more and there's so much more to this word. So we're going to keep going. Next we see in Genesis one verse 26, it says this, then God said, Elohim said this, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. And so in, in this verse, we learn that Elohim refers to God's plurality in his essence, plurality in his essence. We believe that God, the Bible teaches that God exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, the Bible says, but he exists in three persons. His essence is that he exists 
in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Bible teaches that they are all God. Each one is God. But we have one God. It's the doctrine of the Godhead, the doctrine of the Trinity, that we believe in one God. There's only one God, but he exists in three different persons. So our God, watch this, lives in community. In and of himself, God exists in community. And this God who exists in community says, let us make man in our image. God referring to himself as a plural, a father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Let us make man, let us make woman in our image. In other words, you were created to live in community. Because you were made in the image of God with his likeness. You were created with a longing, with a desire to belong to be a part of a group, to be a part of a people. And so we will search for that. We search for that in girls and guys and dating relationships. We, church, we, we search for that, that sense of belonging in different groups and, and, and we're willing to sometimes do whatever it takes to be a part of this group or, or, or that group because we have this desire to belong because we were created inherently we were hardwired. We were designed with this need, with this sense of community. You were made in his image. And so because you were made in the image of God, every one of you, you have intrinsic worth and value. This word image refers to literally like a stamp that would be put placed on a, a coin, like a printing press that has the image of the president and it goes down on a coin and it leaves that same image behind on that coin. You were made in the same way. Every single one of you in this room, you have worth and value because you have a divine stamp. You were made in the image of God. And so what does this mean for us? It means that we need to belong. It means there's a family, there's a people that we belong to. You see, when you give your life to Jesus, you enter this family, this family of God where you have brothers and sisters now in Christ. Our temptation is always to run from that community, is to run from that family and to find that somewhere else. But you were designed to do this life in the family of God. Not independent, doing it on your own. Not dependent, relying on everyone else and not doing anything for yourself. No, it's an interdependent relationship in the family of God where I need you and you need me. Paul said it like this. The family of God is like a body. Some of us are eyes, some of us are ears, mouths, knees, legs, whatever. We're, we're like a body. But it makes no sense for the ear to say, I don't need the rest of the body. Or for the body to say, I don't need the ear or the mouth or the nose. We need each other. Because God exists in community and you were made in his image. You were designed, you were hardwired to do this life in the family of God. So you need to belong. And not only when you belong somewhere, not only do you take, you give. You see, because you have worth and value, because you were made in the image of God, it means you have worth and value to the family of God. 
And so the Bible says, the follower of Jesus, you've received a gift, a gift of the Holy Spirit in order to serve God's church so that we can build each other up. So I need you and you need me. We need each other to build each other up, to grow each other in our faith. We won't be as strong without you. If you don't belong and you're not giving and taking from the family of God, you'll never be as strong in Christ as you could be. I won't be as strong in Christ if you don't belong to the body. If you don't engage, you don't belong and you begin to give back. Because I can't say I can get by without you. And you can't say you can get by without me. This is a body. It's a family. And so our response to this attribute of God is to belong. And then the last passage we'll look at tonight is this. It's Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 17, where it says, the Lord your God, Elohim, is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God. And so here we learn that Elohim refers to God's preeminence in his position. Preeminence in his position. The word preeminent means to be before. It's to surpass. It's to be above. And so when Deuteronomy 10 verse 17 says that the Lord your God, Elohim, is the God above gods, it means he's before any other God. He's before anything else in our lives. He's the King of Kings. He's the Lord of Lords. He is the great and awesome and mighty God. And this was said in reference to God's power over the Egyptian gods. Some of you may remember the story of, of, of Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, Hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh saying, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And so the, the plagues came and happened the, the, the 10 plagues that God executed on Pharaoh in Egypt. Well, when you go and study each one of these plagues, you learn and you begin to realize with each plague, God was saying to Egypt and to their gods, I am the one true God. When Moses and Aaron threw the snake on the ground and the magicians copied it, it says that God's snake, the snake that Moses and Aaron had seen form into a snake through their rod, the staff that they threw on the ground, ate up and gobbled up the snakes that the magicians formed. Because you see, Egypt, Pharaoh, the Egyptians at this time, they worshiped thousands of gods. And the snake, the cobra, to be in fact, represented one of their deities. Well, this would happen 10 times over. Even to the point of showing that Pharaoh, who believed himself to be a deity, and so did the Egyptians, recognized that God had power even over him. And so with each plague, God was saying, that's not a God, that's not a God, that's not a God, that is no God at all. The Nile River, that's no God. Frogs, creatures, cows, those aren't, those aren't gods. I am God. I am God alone. There is no 
other. And so with each plague, God was telling Egypt, I am the God of gods. There is no other. The things you were worshiping and following are worthless idols. There is no one like me. I am above everything and everyone. When I was in Thailand the first time, we were up in the north, in the mountains, north of Chiang Mai, and where a church planting movement has exploded. And I was in this village and we were sitting around in this hut and uh, the missionary that we were with said, this guy that we were with, a very old man, used to be a witch doctor. We're like, wow, that's, that's, that's pretty wild. You know, tell us, tell us the story. And he said, well, the very first time I came to this village, it was the middle of the night, it was raining, it was pouring, our truck broke down and, and we walked to this village and, and we asked him if we could stay the night with him. And this man, the witch doctor, said, yeah, sure, you can, you can, you can stay with us. And they, they came in, and they asked if they had anything to eat. And they had some food that they had sacrificed or, or made as a worship or a sacrifice to one of their idols. They said, well, all we have is, is this food. And they were like, yeah, we're, we're starving. We'll take it anyways. And so, so they, they ate the food. They went to sleep. They woke up the next morning. They came outside of the hut. The whole village had surrounded the hut. And they came out. And through a translator, they figured out that the village was trying to figure out how they were still alive. And so the witch doctor said, how is it that you're alive? And, and this missionary whom we were with said, what are you talking about? He said, well, when I gave you your food, while you were praying before you ate it, I put poison in the food to kill you. He said, so we're all trying to figure out how you survived the night because I tried to kill you last night. And I'm sitting next to this witch doctor. I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, okay. So, so he said, the missionary says, his name's Ralph. He said, the only way we could be alive if you really tried to poison us, the only way that we could really, we could be alive right now is if our God, Jesus, saved us from certain death. And the witch doctor said this in front of the, the, the whole tribe. He said, Jesus, we, we've heard of this Jesus before. And our missionary friend said, how, how have you heard of Jesus? And he said, well, whenever I would go into my trances, he said, I would always go into this spirit world and I would communicate with these spirits. He said, I overheard some of them talking one time. He said, I heard him say this name, Jesus. And he said, and so in this trance and this seance, he asked those spirits, who are you, who, who's Jesus? Who, who are you talking about? And the spirits told the witch doctor this in his trance. Oh, Jesus is the most high spirit. But we can't tell you anything more about him. If you want to know more about him, you'll have to ask someone else. And so they told Norman, our, our, our friend, the, the, the missionary that we were with, they told him, this was years before, they told him, they said, so can you tell us more about who this Jesus, this most high spirit is? Norman couldn't believe they'd never heard. No one had ever told them the name of Jesus before. They had no idea who Jesus was. 
The only thing they knew about Jesus was from a trance of a witch doctor communicating with evil spirits, demons, and overheard them in a trance talking about the most high spirit, Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the name above every name. And at his name, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our God is preeminent. He is above, he is before, he surpasses and he says, I am the one true God. If you're following or you're worshiping another God, that's really no God at all, it's an idol who can do nothing for you. And so our response to Elohim being preeminent in his position is to bow. It's to bow. It's to bow down. Some of us tonight, when we think about God or following God or giving our lives to God or or worshiping God, we don't bow down, we bow up. And we say, no, 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 no. I'm gonna do things my way. I'm not bowing down to any God. And so we bow up. Some of us do this in, in different parts of our lives. We, we, we bow down and, and we follow God and we do things God's way in, in some things, but there's other parts of our life that we say, no, 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 I know better or I'll trust my heart or, or what I think. And when we do that, we're bowing up to God and saying, I know better than you. And so you can bow up to God or you can humble yourself and bow down to God. But the Bible says this, that those who exalt themselves, those who bow up will be humbled. They'll be brought down. The Bible says that God opposes the proud. He opposes those who bow up, but he gives grace and mercy to the humble, those who bow down. So those who exalt themselves will be humbled. But the Bible says this, those who humble themselves, those who bow down, God will lift up and will exalt. And so the question I have for you tonight is this, do do you want to be lifted up? Do you want to be exalted by God or do you want God to oppose you? I don't know about you, But when I look at the God of the Bible, as he's revealed in the Bible, as he's revealed himself to us in the Bible, I don't want to oppose a God who exists outside of time and space, who has the power to say something and to create something out of nothing, who is preeminent, who is above all and surpasses all. I'd rather bow down before a God like that then bow up. I want God to lift me up. I want God to exalt me, to lift me up. I don't want God to oppose me. And so some of you are here tonight and you know that in some area, maybe it's your dating relationships or an addiction that you continue to deny a lifestyle that you continue to engage in and you know it's 
not what God wants for you. You know it's not according to God's word. You've been bowing up and saying, I'm going to do things my way. I'm going to follow my heart. I'm going to do what makes me happy. When the Bible says the heart is deceitful above all else. Our tendency, the Bible says, it says this in the book of Judges, is to do what's right in our own eyes. And in doing so, we bow up and we say, I know what's right. I know what to do. I know how to live. I know what's right. I will follow my heart. I will do what makes me happy or happy in the moment. And in doing so, you may not realize you're bowing up to God and God opposes the proud. He opposes those who bow up to him and those who bow up to him, he will bring down low. And so you have a choice to bow up or to bow down and say, God, you are in charge. You are in control. Your way is right. I bow down. Have you ever forgotten someone's name before? Like you're, you're, it's on the, the tip of your tongue. You, you know it, you see their face, but, but you, you've just, you've forgotten their name and, and it can't come to mind. It drives me crazy. I did this the other day. We, my wife and I were talking about somebody and, and I, I couldn't, I saw their face, but I couldn't place their name. I forgot their name. And we tend to do that with people we know, but not really, really well. Like I would never forget my wife's name. Okay. I would be in big trouble. I may not have a wife if I forgot my wife's name, right? Yeah, I don't, I'm not going to forget my kids' names, okay? Now, sometimes if you're a parent, and when you're a parent, or even as a child, you've seen your parents rattle off every other name in the book before they get to yours. Sometimes I'll say the dog's name before I get to one of my kids' names. There was one time my brothers were all in town, and, and, and we were all together in my house as a family, and I was trying to talk to one of my kids. I went through every brother and dog and cat because uh, I was so flustered. I couldn't get to my kids' name, but I got to it. It took me a while, but I got to it. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But when you know someone really well, you don't forget their name. You know their name. In Jeremiah chapter 23, God said of Israel and Israel's leaders, they forgot my name, and so they worshiped other gods. And so here's what I want you to see tonight, is that when you forget who God is, his name, you depart from God himself. God said, Jeremiah 23, Israel, their leaders, they forgot who I was, and so they forgot my name, and so they begin to worship other gods that they made in their image. You see, when you don't know who God is as he's revealed himself in the Bible, you begin naturally just to form your own God. Or Romans 1 says it like this, that though they knew God, they, they didn't acknowledge him as God, and so they didn't really know him, and so they traded the truth of God for a lie, and they began to think up foolish thoughts in their head about what God is like. And I want to submit to you tonight that Many of us have thought up foolish ideas in our minds about what God is like because we don't really know him. You know some things about him. You've been to church some. 
You've heard some of the stories, but you don't really know him. And when you don't really know him, you begin to forget who he is, if you ever knew it in the first place. And you begin to turn away. You begin to walk away. You begin to create your own God with the foolish ideas in your heart and you begin to trade the truth of God for a lie, Romans 1 says. You might think, well, how do, how do I do that? When you begin to think that there's no way that God could help you or save you from that situation, that's a lie. Because we already said tonight that God can create something out of nothing. He can create everything out of nothing with a spoken word. That's the, the power of our God. That's the creative power of our God. And so it's a lie to think that God couldn't do this or, or he couldn't save me or he couldn't rescue me or he couldn't change this or he couldn't change that person. That's a lie. It's a lie to think that something else could fill the emptiness in your life. It's a lie because the truth of God is that God fills the emptiness. It's a lie to think that God can't straighten out your mess because the Bible says in Genesis chapter one that God took what was formless and he brought order and design and beauty to it. That's the truth of God. It's a lie to think that you don't need the family of God and so you'll do it on your own. When the truth of God is that God lives and exists in community and you were made in his image and so you were designed to belong. It's a lie to think that you're not needed. It's a lie to think that someone else isn't needed. It's a lie to worship a God that's not a God at all. It's a lie to put something before God thinking that that will satisfy you or give you the joy or the peace. It's a lie to think that you can bow up to God and somehow live a life worth anything that matters. It's a lie to think that you can bow up to God and not experience the consequences for that decision. The truth of God is that he is preeminent and so our response is to bow down. And some of you are here tonight and you've never bowed down to God for the first time. You've never humbled yourself and given your life to Jesus. And I wanna challenge you that maybe tonight's your night. The Bible says that we've all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's standard to have a relationship with him, to go to heaven when we die, every one of us have. It's a lie to think you can be good enough to go to heaven. The Bible says you've fallen short of that standard. It's a lie to think that if you're good enough or if you go to church enough times that maybe God will be satisfied with you or, or that, that that will pacify God or, or God will let you into heaven because you were a good person or, or you were a spiritual person or, or you grew up going to church. That's a lie. The truth of God says salvation is not a reward for the good things that we've done, that none of us are good, no, not one. But the truth of God also says that God loves you so much. He sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for you in your place. The ultimate act of humility, to die at the hands of his own creation, to take the penalty of their sin upon himself as they nailed into the cross. 
Jesus died on that cross to pay the fine that you and I over sin. And so some of you are here tonight and you've been trusting and being a good enough person or going to church or, or, or whatever. But tonight you need to know the truth of God says the only way you'll be made right in God's sight is to give your life to Jesus so that the fine for your sin can be paid for. Your sin would be forgiven and you could be made right with God. Romans 3 says that you are made right with God when you believe that Jesus sacrificed his life and shed his blood for you. Some of you need to bow for the first time tonight and believe in what God has done for you through Jesus. And if that's you, I wanna challenge you, go to RaiderChurch.com, fill out our connect form and check the box that says, I'm committing my life to Christ. I just wanna invite you to close your eyes everywhere you're at and our team's gonna lead us in a time of worship, but, but I, I wanna just close tonight a little bit differently than we normally do. And I, as you close your eyes, I want you to picture something. I want you to picture a scene in heaven right now. I want you to picture this scene in heaven that will be one day. In Revelation seven, it says that there's a, a crowd that's so vast, no one can count and that there are angels. And we talked last week about, about how many angels could possibly be at, at God's disposal, but, but there's millions and, and, and millions of, of angels. And the Bible says that there's these beings that, that, that we've never even seen before on this planet that, that, that are there before God in, in heaven. And then there's this crowd of followers of Jesus that's so vast, it says that no one can count. And here's what's happening with this, with this crowd. It says that all of this crowd and the angels and these beings in heaven, it says that they are all, they're standing and then they all bow down before the Lamb of God. And they say, worthy, is the lamb who was slain and he will receive glory and power and honor and wisdom and strength. And so in this scene in heaven, that you will join one day as a follower of Jesus, the response to God is to bow. And so tonight, as our team leads us, I wanna invite you, if you're willing and you're comfortable, to bow. And as our team leads us in worship, you can stand as you feel led in worship. You can stay seated. You can stay bowed in a bowed position. But I wanna invite you tonight to do what all of heaven is doing right now, and it's to bow before our preeminent God.